You are listening to Cyber Law Monitor, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Practice Group, with discussions and perspectives on emerging trends, developments, and best practices. Now, let's get started with your host, Andrew Baer. Hello, and welcome to Cyber Law Monitor. I'm your host, Andy Baer. And today we're going to explore what is the worst nightmare for many companies. You've been the subject of a data breach, a ransomware attack or other type of data breach. What do you do and who do you call? My guest today is Matt Clare, a senior associate in Cozen O'Connor's Technology, Privacy and Data Security Practice Group. How are you doing today, Matt? Hi, Andy. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So let's uh, launch right into it. So you've been breached, whom do you call? Obviously, the company's chief information security officer, CISO, should be the first recipient or one of the first recipients of uh, of notices. And there should be a formal uh, notice chain in the company's data breach incident response policy indicating who internally should receive notices. So CISO, that seems clear enough. Uh, Let's go to legal counsel. Obviously, a company's uh, general counsel or chief legal officer should be among the first to receive notices of a breach incident. But what about outside counsel? Matt, can you comment a little bit on when a company that's been breached should hire outside counsel? Uh, Absolutely. So I think certainly when there is a confirmed compromise of any data Uh, or the company's information systems. I think even if the suspected impact of the event is believed to be relatively low at the time, uh, it's still important to engage uh, outside counsel so that they can begin to start analyzing the legal issues that stem from the incident um, and to direct the investigation of the incident, all of which is sort of with the goal of establishing attorney-client privilege over communications that concern the event, as well as strengthen the assertion that any kind of work product that results from the investigation is protected by the attorney work product privilege. Um, another point in time to, to think about uh, for a company to think about is when the company has determined that it needs to engage a third-party forensic consultant to assist with some kind of investigation, uh, but it hasn't necessarily determined that there's been an actual breach uh, or an actual intrusion into its systems. Um, again, I think all for purposes of, of protecting communications and work product that result from the investigation in anticipation of litigation concerning the event, that's uh, it, another good point in time to think about engaging outside counsel. And I think that's particularly true for companies that don't themselves have an in-house legal representative. So you've been breached and you feel you're going to need to hire an outside investigator. So you should hire outside counsel at that point or no later than that point to ensure that the or to try to ensure that the results of the computer forensics investigation are privileged. Yep, I completely agree with that. And that's a very hot topic today, uh, privilege with the Capital One breach litigation and other cases in federal court across the nation. We'll delve a little bit more into that further in the broadcast. I should also note that a company's cyber insurer should be among the first outside uh, entities or outside persons to receive notice of a breach uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, First of all, hopefully a company has cyber insurance, and if it does, the company should speak with its broker or check its policy. That cyber insurer will hopefully cover a lot of the costs that uh, we're going to be discussing in this broadcast, like the cost of hiring a computer forensic uh, investigator, and we'll return to that in a minute, Uh, perhaps breach counsel uh, to to advise the company on how to comply with state data breach laws, who who needs to be notified, and uh, what the contents of the notification have to be. Perhaps a cyber insurance policy will also cover such things as the 
setting up of a call center to receive calls uh, and questions, inquiries from affected individuals uh, who, who want to know what happened and how they can protect themselves. Uh, sometimes cyber insurance also uh, covers such costs as a, a PR agency to help a company manage its reputation in the event of a, of a data breach. Uh, so obviously you want uh, your insurer, if you're the company that's been breached, to pay for as much of this as possible. And by the same token, uh, if a uh, company is dilatory in notifying its cyber insurer or incurs a whole bunch of costs without uh, notifying the cyber insurer, the chances of a denial of coverage are, are that much higher. So let's return to the issue of the forensic investigator. The forensic investigator is a critical party um, in the investigation for remediation of data breach to help the company understand what happened and what might have been affected. Matt, can you revisit some of the privilege issues that you mentioned a moment earlier and how these figure into structuring the contractual engagement with a computer forensic investigator? Sure. Uh, so courts have determined that an outside cybersecurity firm's forensic analysis of an incident is generally not protected by the attorney work product privilege uh, when there are certain factors present. Um, one is when the client retained the cybersecurity firm before the breach occurred. Uh, a second factor sort of related is where the client uses the same third-party consultant that it does for other matters um, to investigate the incident and doesn't enter into a separate engagement um, for the forensic investigation of the breach. In other words, a separate engagement letter or a separate statement of work. Um, another factor is when the retainer is referred to as a business expense rather than a legal expense. Uh, again, it goes to sort of the importance of having outside counsel engage the forensic investigator. Um, and another factor is when the consultant is engaged by a business person rather than an in-house counsel uh, when the company has an in-house legal team. So all sort of stemming from the same, um, uh, you know, the idea that it's very important to engage the external counsel uh, to engage the forensic investigator for purposes of protecting um, the work product that results from the investigation itself. Thanks, Matt. Now, let's say... Um despite the advice uh, that it's preferable to have a, a new engagement with a new investigator uh, engaged by outside counsel, let's say a, a client wants to use its regular security company and uh, put a retainer in place uh, with that security company that could be drawn upon in the event of a, of a data breach incident. I understand that lowers the probability of uh, privilege being successfully claimed, but uh, in that situation where a company does want to do that, is there anything it can do to increase its probability of um, claiming privilege? Uh, sure. Yeah, there are certain things that can be done where the company has a desire or a strong preference to put the retainer agreement in place in advance, uh, you know, essentially to secure um, their preferred vendor in the event that an incident occurs and secure favorable rates uh, for responding to the incident. Um, all of those are, th are concerns that we've uh, heard companies express. Um, and so, you know, if, if a company wants to go that route, there are certain things that can be done in order to try to preserve um, the privilege um, privilege over the work product and the communications. One uh, is to create a contract framework under which a new sort of breach-specific statement of work is entered into by outside counsel and the vendor pursuant to the retainer agreement. 
Um, and that sort of describes that the outside counsel is the one engaging the vendor and the vendors undertaking the investigation at the direction of the outside counsel in anticipation of litigation. Uh, another thing to, to include in that document is a, is a prohibition on the vendor from taking any kind of action that is inconsistent with the company's claim of attorney-client privilege or attorney work product over the resulting analysis. Uh, and another you know, suggestion is to contractually limit the personnel with whom the vendor is permitted to share the reports uh, or communicate about the breach. Um, essentially, you know, limiting the uh, distribution of the vendor's reports to those folks who have a need to know uh, in connection with analyzing the company's legal obligations that result from the breach. So how you structure the contract, um, which is a transactional issue, is, is very critical here. A, a footfall could have major repercussions for a privilege claim um, down the line, correct? That's right. Absolutely right. And this is a really new and emerging area of law with uh, all the data breach cases and issues of privilege being litigated in federal courts every day. I should also note that, you know, even if you follow all the advice that uh, Matt has given, and it is very good, good advice, there's still no guarantee of privilege or that a claim of privilege will be upheld because to claim the attorney work product privilege in a computer forensics report that is produced after a data breach, um, you know, essentially you have to show, uh, and Matt, correct me if I've gotten the standard incorrect, but yeah, you have to show that, um, you know, this report, this document was produced in anticipation of litigation. Right. And, uh, you know, if it was produced on the other hand, merely to advise business people, then it doesn't satisfy the, the work product standard. Is that correct? That's correct. Absolutely right. And so you can see uh, for our audience the tension in, involved here uh, because in any kind of data breach investigation, um, the report may have a litigation function, uh, but it may also have uh, just an ordinary IT or security function in advising the business what happened and how to prevent a similar breach from occurring in the future, uh, all of which are very appropriate reasons to procure. Uh, such an investigative report, but uh, but again, they, they they tend to cast it in the light of a business document rather than a legal document. Among other uh, external parties that a company that's been breached should notify vendors. So if you're, say, in-house counsel uh, or outside counsel for a company that, that, that's been breached, uh, one of the things you should be thinking about, although it's not necessarily the most pleasant task in the world, is whether or not you can shift some of these costs you're incurring um, onto another party through an indemnity clause in a contract or, or uh, data breach reimbursement clause or some other mechanism. So, for example, if you are a company that stores all your information in a at a cloud service provider and it's the cloud service provider's systems that have been breached, uh, not yours. Uh, hopefully there's a, a data breach indemnity clause or cost reimbursement clause somewhere in, you know, in that contract uh, so that you can get some sort of reimbursement or, or even get them to pay for some of these costs uh, that, you know, that, that you're incurring. And those costs can certainly mount, mount up in a hurry in the event of a data breach. I mean, just on a personal level, I've, uh, I've seen data breach incidents uh, at, at large clients where, you know, it was later determined by the forensic investigator that no actual PII was, was released um, 
outside of the company's environment, I've still seen companies uh, rack up tabs of a couple million dollars uh, over a weekend in investigating this stuff. So, um, uh, so it is important to see, um, you know, whether you have any kind of contractual compensation for these, uh, for these costs. Um, Matt, I'll just uh, throw in another quick question your way. Um, stepping out of the, uh, you know, imminent um, scenario of the data breach and looking at the contractual phase, I mean, when companies entrust, you know, entrust sensitive information or such as personal information to vendors, I mean, they should have certain clauses in those contracts, right, to, you know, make sure the vendors uh, stand behind their service in this type of event. Absolutely. I think in addition to sort of the indemnity type uh, remedies that you mentioned, I think it's also a good practice to have you know, a robust information security exhibit that's attached to any contract where the vendor will be processing any, you know, significant amounts of personal or other sensitive information. Um, you know, I think in, in the first instance, if you can avoid a breach, uh, one step to take is sort of ensuring that the vendor's security measures are up to snuff. Uh, that's that's certainly uh, a great place to start. Uh, so you don't have to go down this road at all. And of course, you know, when, when, if and when a breach does arise, um, having an indemnification from a vendor, as well as, you know, perhaps specific cost reimbursements or cost shifting um, for, for costs or um, expenses that arise in connection with the investigation of a breach or, or, you know, potential litigation concerning a breach, uh, all of those are great things to be included in a contract um, and negotiated up front with the vendor. Thanks, Matt. And I should also add that in addition to risk shifting or cost shifting provisions of the type that Matt just mentioned, the contract should also contain some sort of clause where a vendor notifies you within a certain amount of time, uh, preferably 24 hours, uh, but no more than 72, uh, after becoming aware of a, of a data breach and promises to provide you, their customer, with all information and visibility you need to get in order to understand what happened, um, what information was compromised, and um, what remedial measures are being implemented being implemented to make sure this doesn't happen again. Uh, all that is necessary in order to for the company, for the customer, to satisfy its obligations under data breach notice laws and uh, placate regulators. So, in terms of other um, parties that we uh, we might need to communicate with if we're a breach company in the event of a, of a breach incident. Uh, we discussed various external parties, the forensic investigator, outside counsel, vendors, et cetera, et cetera. Let's turn to internal communications within the breached company, specifically the working group at the company that is investigating the breach and helping to determine the company's response. There are going to be a lot of emails or direct messages uh, possibly flying back and forth between a bunch of people at the company in a very, very short time. Everybody's going to be upset um, uh, and, and scurrying around. Uh, it, it is uh, the least optimal of situations to think about internal communications, but nonetheless, uh, these type of communications can be critical, or I should say managing these types of communications can be critical in reducing exposure in litigation um, or regulatory exposure following upon a data breach. Matt, can you um, give some tips uh, as to how a company should manage internal working group communications in this scenario? 
Sure. So, uh, you know, the first one, maybe an obvious one, is to try to avoid any unnecessary written communications to the extent that that's possible. You know, if something has to be written down, you know, you should assume that anything that, that's written down in an email uh, will become discoverable in litigation. And so, you know, to that end, it's, it's very important to avoid speculating on the reasons for the data breach uh, or making conclusions in writing, you know, the company failed to do this, the company failed to do that. Um, this piece of technology malfunction, all of those things should be um, should not be included in any kind of written communication that's that's um, in an email um, that's uh, being made in connection with uh, the investigation of a breach. Uh, where it's possible, you know, include counsel on all the communications concerning the incident. It, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that a court will deem the communication protected by attorney-client privilege, but it certainly helps. Uh, similarly, you know, marking any kind of written documentation. Um, you know, a timeline of events, for example, as being prepared by um, be being protected by attorney-client privilege, uh, or being prepared at the direction of a lawyer. Sort of similar, similar things there. Um, although, you know, that being said, it is it is important to note that overusing those types of markings can dilute uh, an otherwise legitimate claim of attorney-client privilege. So, um, there's a balancing act uh, act there. Um, and when an investigation-relating writing sort of must be created by company personnel um, and transmitted, it's important to try to put in the cover email or some other transmittal document that uh, the document is being shared with, you know, shared for purposes of getting legal advice. So the other folks who are on the receiving end of that email, for example, um, are aware that they should not further disseminate the communication. Thanks, Matt. All of those are, are, are great guidelines. And as these guidelines show, uh, you know, despite the uh, impetus uh, to panic among, you know, uh, some members of a company in this scenario, it is, is as I mentioned earlier, uh, a nightmare scenario for many companies, you know, despite the uh, inclination to cast fingers, you know, or to cast blame. I mean, it, it's really, really important to be methodical about these communications. Um, uh, so they don't blow everything up uh, because a lot of this stuff uh, or even most of it will be discoverable in in, lit in litigation and they it can and will boomerang against companies so let's talk a little bit about uh communicating with affected individuals individuals whose information might be compromised in the event of a of a data breach as well as uh some other third parties uh, as i mentioned a few moments earlier uh, all states, all 50 states, the District of Columbia have data breach notice laws so that if personal information of a certain sensitivity is compromised in a data breach, um, there has to be notice. Uh, sometimes there are exceptions if the information is encrypt encrypted or uh, uh, you know the company reasonably believes there's not a foreseeable risk of harm to individuals. Uh, but in the event of a massive data breach, you know it, it is usually advisable to provide data breach notices. Sometimes these statutes uh, also require notification of regulators and the media. Uh, HIPAA uh, also has a data breach uh, notice rule for protected health information that's compromised in a, in, in a breach. And a lot of the um, work that we do with a forensic investigator is intended to produce the information necessary to populate those notices. What happened, uh, what was compromised, and what are we, what are we doing to uh, um, make it up to the, uh, the individuals and uh, ensure that such an event will not happen in, in, in the future. Uh, another practice note, a company uh, that is hit with a rans ransomware attack, if it is um, 
if it decides to pay the ransomware, and currently about 40% of companies that are hit with ransomware attacks do decide to pay the ransomware to secure their information, um, you should notify the FBI or other law enforcement in advance of your doing that and, and notify them of your intention to pay the ransomware. The reason for that is the uh, individuals that you or groups that you may be uh, paying the ransomware to might be foreign terrorists or criminals or other individuals and groups on various watch lists um, managed by the uh, Office of Foreign Access Control, OFAC. And the Treasury Department has, uh, you know, has said that uh, if you notify in advance, if you notify law enforcement in advance of paying off a ransomware attacker, that'll be a significant mitigating factor in determining whether or not the federal government uh, proceeds against you for violating U.S. sanctions rules if, uh, uh, you know, if um, the group or individuals you pay off are on any of these watch lists. Some other thoughts about uh, external communications in the event of a, of a data breach. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, many companies suffering massive breaches may engage a PR firm to try to uh, manage their reputation associated with these breaches. I mean, when a company's breached, it's 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 in the news. Um, that uh, reporting typically triggers regulatory um, investigations or enforcement proceedings. Sometimes class action lawsuits. Uh, so, making sure that. You communicate uh, the right amount of responsibility and re remorse and, uh, and and simply the facts of what happened and do it uh, as part of a concerted PR strategy is critical. And sometimes a cyber insurer will, as I said, um, pay for the cost of a PR firm. Uh, you also want to set up a call center to uh, field calls from affected individuals. There may be a lot of frightened people out there once they receive your data breach notices or even hear about the breach in the news. And it's, it's highly recommended to have a script um, to, and have these uh, call center uh, personnel trained in a script uh, so that you don't go off topic um, when, when somebody calls as they will. In communicating externally, about a data breach, whether with affected individuals, uh, regulators, uh, the media, uh, you name it, you know, wh whomever. Uh, the emphasis is on being accurate, not being misleading, and not covering anything up. So, you know, you, you want to say what happened. You want to say, the you know, basically what might have been impacted. And uh, especially you want to say what the company's doing to compensate individuals uh, whose you know, information might have been stolen or who might have been victims of identity theft. Usually that's done through credit monitoring and credit repair services paid, uh, paid for by the company. Um, and you want to you know, say, this is what we've learned and this is what we're doing uh, to ensure that such an incident will not happen again. These are, this is how we're beefing up our information security procedures. So you don't want to be coy. Um, you don't want to be misleading or deceptive. That can get you into even worse trouble with uh, class action plaintiffs, lawyers, and, and regulators. You know, especially don't don't cover anything up. I mean, you don't necessarily. Uh, you don't want to say you screwed up or anything like that. Um, you know, regret, but not. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but not saying it was your fault. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to minimize, you know, uh, or, or dismiss uh, the gravity of, of, of what's happened. So there's, there's a special style of communicating 
you know, in this event and it's, and it's sort of really being, you know, honest and, uh, you know, expressing what, what, what you've learned and how you're going to work within, you know, affected individuals and, uh, and your security to ensure this doesn't happen again. So, Matt, um, now that we've sort of gone through the list of parties that uh, a breach company may, may speak to, can you add a few thoughts down the road about how uh, a company experiencing a breach uh, might be impacted in a strategic corporate transaction, such as a merger or acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we frequently assist our colleagues in the M&A practice on data privacy and security matters that come up in connection with um, acquisitions or investments. Uh, and sort of, you know, universally, a buyer or an investor uh, will want to know certainly about any security breaches that the target company has suffered. Um, and, you know, in most cases, um, if there have been any breaches, the buyer or the investor will want to dig in in particular detail, um, you know, to how the uh, how the company handled the breach and responded to the breach. And in particular, will want to know um, whether the target company retained an external forensic consultant to investigate the incident and perform a threat hunt. Uh, if the company didn't do this, I think, you know, the, the buyer or the investor will want to, you know, hear why not. Uh, and, you know, the company would want to have a particularly compelling reason as to why it didn't, you know, retain an external forensic consultant in particular in connection with any particular breaches. Um, you know, it's generally a red flag if an external consultant isn't engaged. Uh, and so the buyer will, will scrutinize that pretty heavily in our experience. Um, you know, the buyer or the investor will also want to know what types of confidential information or personal information or other, you know, competitively sensitive information um, of the target company was impacted or accessed or potentially exfiltrated uh, and how the company reached the conclusion as to which data was, was impacted um, and also what security measures were taken by the target company following the breach in an effort to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, you know, I think in our experience, uh, uh, an incident that is poorly managed could certainly, you know, raise the buyer's concerns, uh, either about dormant security risks in the company's IT infrastructure or also about liability, um, you know, liability for failure to notify affected data breach, or affected data subjects under the data breach notification statutes, Andy, that you had mentioned, um, and to comply with data breach notification laws in connection with the incident. Um, and it could also raise, you know, if it's a rep and warranty insurance deal for an acquisition, it could raise the insurer's concerns um, about the company's security practices, which uh, in turn could result in the data breach itself being excluded from the rep and warranty insurance coverage um, or other exclusions from the privacy and data security related warranties generally, um, which could result ultimately in the, some kind of special escrow or indemnity that the target company would have to bear and finance itself outside of the insurance policy. Um, so really, um, you know, uh, good security breach management practices um, are, are important and things that will be looked at in connection with an M&A or, or uh, a strategic investment. Thanks for those thoughts, Matt. Uh, your point about uh, the impact on rep and warranty insurance is, is particularly critical, and I, and I definitely want to echo that. Um, R&W insurance is such a, a common part of M&A transactions you know, these, these days that, you know, something uh, as big and as, um, uh, you know, creating a potential liability as a data, you know, as a data breach could be ex excluded from this. I mean, that could theoretically blow up, a, blow up an M&A transaction. Or at yep. least make it a lot more yep. uncomfortable for the seller. Certainly good. Thanks. Well, that's about all the time we have today for Cyber Law Monitor. Uh, I'm your host, Andy Baer. My guest has been Matt Clare of Cozen's Technology Privacy and Data Security Group. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Thanks, Andy. And please stay tuned for 
More releases of Cyber Law Monitor in the coming weeks and months on emergent issues in technology and privacy. Take care and be safe, everybody.